Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations about art and culture, you might want to check out the newest releases from David's Werner Books, where we've published award-winning titles on Diane Arbus, Yayoi Kusama, and Carrie James Marshall, in addition to Ekphrasis, the critically acclaimed series of texts on art. This season, look out for books from the likes of Catherine Bernhardt, Noah Davis, and Marcel Zama, as well as new additions to the beloved Ekphrasis series. Visit davidswernerbooks.com to learn more. My name is Stan Douglas, and I'm fascinated by when things go wrong. I'm Stan Douglas, and I'm fascinated when things go wrong. Right. That's better grammar. <laughs> I'm Jason Moran, an improviser, and things always go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> From David Zwerner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about creativity and ideas. Only I knew what was happening, because <laughs> uh, it wasn't the shared knowledge there. Nobody knew I was doing it, right? Like, that's so jazz. <laughs> I'm Lucas Werner, editorial director of David's Werner Books. In every episode on the podcast, we'll introduce you to a surprising pairing. We're taking the artists we work with at the gallery and putting them in conversation with some of the world's most extraordinary makers and thinkers. Today's pairing, Stan Douglas and Jason Moran. From film and multi-channel video to photography and augmented reality, Stan is fearless in pushing himself into uncharted territory. He invents new technologies to make new bodies of work. He's also a master at recreating historical moments, shifting and mixing narratives, time, and space to create something entirely new. In a work from 2014, he meticulously remade the experience of recording a 1970s Miles Davis record. It features a powerhouse lineup of musicians, and the result is a mesmerizing six-hour video loop called Luanda Kinshasa. Stan doesn't write music, so he needed to find someone great to compose and perform this original piece, and he found that person in Jason Moran. Jason is a groundbreaking pianist and composer. In 2010, he was named a MacArthur Fellow. He runs his own record label. He's the artistic director for jazz at the Kennedy Center, and he teaches at the New England Conservatory of Music. He has scored movies and TV shows, and he continues to be at the vanguard of experimental jazz, and more recently, visual art too. We got settled in the studio, and I asked Stan about the first time he met Jason. Yeah, it was kind of like fate, it seemed like. Oh, wow, <laughs> I like that. I was doing a talk at Columbia, and this handsome guy in the audience says, hey, Stan, have you ever had an idea of doing a live thing? Right. And I said, yeah, I was trying to make a, a direction of Lulu. I had an idea for doing Albenberg's opera Lulu with a jazz orchestra, and it kind of fell through because I had artistic differences with the composer I was working with. And afterwards, he came up and said, you know, hi, I'm Jason Moran, and it's amazing because I've been studying that score for the last year. And then I said, that's amazing because our mutual friend, Scotty Hard, and I are going to go see you at Birdland tomorrow night. All right. And then the next day, I see you on the street in Chelsea. So it's like... Why do I keep on seeing this guy? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so I guess you've had the band for how, how long? The bandwagon? We've been together 19 years now, yeah. So it's like you're, you're married. Yeah, we are. <laughs> so how do you keep it interesting? <laughs> well, I don't know. We keep it interesting because I bring in these odd projects to do. In 2005, I made this piece called Milestone. It was kind of, kind of a concert, but a concert broken up into halves, but where you saw what would happen in the break, in the intermission, for the band. 
So the audience would hear a band conversation and be looking at us on stage, but not with our instruments. And so they would listen to an 18-minute conversation that we had had backstage, but meanwhile, we would just stare into the audience <laughs> for 18 minutes straight. And the conversation is mundane. It's us talking about chocolate in Zimbabwe. You know, like, <laughs> like it's like, stuff like that. But it's also like, this is how it is on the road. And then you come back into the music. And we framed it in a way around the work of Adrian Piper at the same time. In her Mythic Being pieces, the way, you know, the way she wrote about it, the way she wrote about it as the character... And so you knew that there were kind of multiple selves that were at play. So did you play your banter? I mean, because like, uh, there's that great piece where you play a bit of one of her lectures, Artists mm. Should Be Talking. Right, Artists Ought to Be Writing. Yeah, Ought to Be yeah, Writing? Yeah. Artists Ought to Be Writing? Yeah. Yeah, well, every every voice has a pitch. I mean, that was close. That wasn't really it. You know, you know, like, so you can play a person's language and you can play their intent in their tone of their voice, right? So, and every once in a while, I'll record people and... and and play their voice on piano because what it does is it awakens how conversation really sounds, whether it's moving or still or even these pieces. How do you keep that interesting? I've always loved materialist art, like, say, Agnes Martin paintings. I was seeing a show of her work in, in Paris in 93, and just like having a, my sense of the, the room and the light in, in a sense I didn't have before through, through the work. I can never paint, but I, I do photography. How do I do a materialist photograph that would work the same way? And uh, photographs have been done to death since the beginning of the 20th century, so I like, really didn't want to go there. And then I decided to decode or reverse engineer the way in which JPEG compresses almost everything. Like, it's like Netflix uses the same technique of discrete co cosine transform. We're seeing it constantly, but actually we don't recognize until it breaks down. Hearing you talk about this, this way of kind of moving past some of these expectations maybe that a viewer might have. It did make me want to ask how you were introduced to the camera. Like, were your, how were your parents a part of your process? Or I took photographs kind of late. Uh, I was in art school as a printmaker, hmm. and then as a sculptor. And then I photographed a sculpture and liked that better than making the sculpture. Hmm. And so I kind of went from there. Didn't really do it seriously until I was out of art school, even though I did study uh, photography. And then I got into it when I got a job as a photographer at a museum by lying and saying I knew how to work a large format camera. I could print well, but then I said, oh, yeah, I use 405s all the time. And then the next weekend, I sort of like got the books out and began practicing to figure out what the hell this thing was. But through that process, I got to know the technique quite a bit better. But I didn't really make photographs uh, as my primary work until much later on. I was raised by a single mother. She was always supportive of what I did, even though relatives would go, like, he's going to art school. Is that okay? <laughs> she says, yeah, that's what he wants to do. <laughs> so my, my worst nightmare was when... There was an article in Time magazine uh, mm. years ago, and the one at one point says, so what did your father do? What did your mother do? I said, my father's a neurologist. My mother uh, worked at the university, but she had a lot of books around, so it's kind of like there's no art involved, but I got into reading the, these books that are around the house. Yeah. And then it just turned into the child of a neurologist and a well-read housewife. <laughs> and she worked every day of her adult life. And <laughs> oh my I got five copies from my mother, and it was like, oh, I can't, I can't, can't show her this. Oh God, wow. That's crazy. <laughs> I ask students a lot about their relationship with their craft and then their family, right? Because sometimes I feel as artists, we could work on a in a certain mode and not ever really share with our family, like, this is kind of how deep I'm going with this. Jason, how did you transition into visual art? I mean, now you are a visual artist among all the other things that you're doing. I went to a high school where, you know, there was 
visual art, there was theater, there was dance, there was orchestra, jazz band. Dating a, a, a girl for a while, you know, that also get you interested in a lot of things. And then by the time I got to New York as a, as a young college student, being in New York and being able to go see shows, you know, so you go see a show at night in a club and in the daytime on the weekend, then you go see a show at a museum. And I remember seeing like things early, you know, as I still was practicing just piano, but like seeing Bruce Nauman retrospective at MoMA, like kind of like messed me up in a great way. Or or Jacob Lawrence, the, the migration series, like they showed that in the 90s. Like seeing some of these things, uh, the Black Male show that Thelma Golden did at the Whitney Museum, like I kind of like was stumbling into these, these kind of historic moments for me. But I wasn't sure how that tied into what I was trying to, the blues I was trying to play. Right. <laughs> no one had ever, there wasn't really a class on that at Manhattan School of Music. But then over the years, kind of finding a way of uh, going to see a lot of work around the world as I toured. Then it, after a while and kind of having a lot of these relationships and also making a kind of a body of work, collaborative work, then it became, like, oh, this is this stuff is now living and it should be addressed kind of face on. Did you, and you were a DJ too, you know. That was I, I like to talk about that yeah. even without ever hearing you DJ. But yeah. <laughs> that was kind of a key thing. It's like that, and really, you're you're making a situation, you're making a vibe, you're making a mm -hmm. situation out of these these presenting things. At one point, I came to New York and I saw Herbie Hancock and Dram Mixer DST. There was a mix of the Wild Style and Rocket, and I learned how to do that. I could play that live. And I go back to Vancouver and play it uh, and during a set, and nobody knew what those songs were, so they had no idea what I was doing. I was doing anything at all. kind of drove me nuts. <laughs> I'd also do pause button uh, remixes of songs. But again, it was kind of frustrating. Only I knew what was happening because <laughs> uh, there wasn't the, um, you know, the shared knowledge there. Nobody knew I was doing it, right? Like, that's so jazz, <laughs> <laughs> right? You know, because it's so, in, in many, many times... It's so subtle what is happening that people doing think you're doing nothing. Right. They actually think you're just rambling. Your, you know, like. But there'll be one person in the audience go, "I know that. Yeah, I know what he's doing." <laughs> <laughs> like when I show that piece Orchamp with uh, that has George Lewis in it in, right. in Documenta, I you know didn't know if it's the right context. But then the janitor came by and said, "Is that Albert Eiler?" Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and then is that George Lewis? And it was right. like he was my ideal viewer. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. That's great. <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask you a question, too, about um, context and genre somehow. This morning I was talking to somebody about pre-contact Colombian art, and uh, she was suggesting that maybe this isn't really art in, in, a, in a true sense because they weren't artists. They're there for a function. Mm. And I said, yeah, just like the Sistine Ceiling by Michelangelo. <laughs> uh, <laughs> is, is that really art? You know, it was there to sort of have a didactic function, as sort of a spectacular function, devotional function. But there was a kind of a change I was thinking of hearing your talk last night going from swing to bebop, where mm. it's not about making people dance. It's about making people listen. Right. And, you know, and, and of course, you know, I also didn't want to paint it so polar that people weren't also dancing to bebop. They sure. still were, but not like they were <laughs> to Chick Webb and his big band, yeah. Savoy Ballroom. And I always felt like, you know, that there was a certain insistence that... Charlie Parker or Thelonious Monk, that these musicians were having on, now we're going to change it and you have to pay attention much closer because it might fly by. And though we've built all this kind of like rigor into the nuance, you might actually miss it because we're not going to show you the show. The show is over. <laughs> the show, you know, like we're here as human beings right now in front yep. of you. And there's a really kind of 
beautiful change of how African-American performers were dealing with the stage. Watching them kind of go from this kind of functional part, right, to then, okay, here's this, I wouldn't call it art part, but I'd call it, (laughs) right now we might say, you know, they're going hard, you know. Right. And they also change the language in a scary way, I think in a threatening way too. Yeah, I don't really make divisions hard between art and popular culture. They all, they produce meaning in some way. Yeah. But I had sort of a funny thought about uh, folk music in general, where mm-hmm. there's not really happy folk music. Folk music is always about the music you, you make when you're sitting around a fire and there are things in the darkness <laughs> that might kill you. <laughs> That's uh, folk music allows you to deal with that, that, that condition. Uh, and you get, don't really get happy music until there's like the safety of a city and the safety mm. of industrial reproduction mm. where you can just sort of not even deal with those, those situations. So fear is not involved in happiness of industrial pop music. Mm. But then somehow fear comes back in bebop. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> I mean, fear is definitely back in bebop. And it comes also in the form of things that people put in their veins. You know, yeah. There's a thing that also people are trying to relieve by having to not only jump on stage, but also mess up the notion of that this is a reliable show. Like, like even that Thelonious Monk might not show up to his own show uh, and that people traditionally were not showing up to their gig. And that's the show. And that's the show. <laughs> <laughs> Where are we today with popular music? I mean, there's a lot of things happening because there's a lot of possibilities, a lot of technology is accessible to people in a way where it's not before. But somehow, because of the accessibility, a lot of people have lost the creative synthesis they had otherwise. If you only have this record and that record, you've got 10 records in your collection and your friends who play music, these are your influences. What do you do with that? It's going to be quite unique, I think, yeah. as opposed to like knowing everything. And I can do an exact pastiche of this or that thing. Uh, if people want this genre, they'll be given that genre. And more and more with social media, it's enforcing that, that, that thing, where it's like uh, you're only shown the news you want, you're supposed to see, you want to see. Yeah, it's been quite... Bizarre to look at it like that because now, you know, students, they used to like have stuff all on their iPad or iPod or whatever, but now they just say, I just go to Spotify, right? So that means that Spotify is the ultimate library? Wow. You know, like it's totally not the case, right? Gaping holes in that, in that, in that library. So much so I don't even put my new records up on, I mean, I don't put it on any streaming service. <laughs> so I'm like, if you're going to find it, you're going to find it on this website and <laughs> you're going to pay for it. <laughs> you know, so but I, the other part was, you know, there's always just been, I mean, popular music is is what it is. I have one theory, which is people like popular music because the grid is so strong in it, right? So it gives us all the comfort we need because the beat is steady, the message is on point, right? The resolutions are on point. It does not like make us go nuts, <laughs> right? So people listening to jazz where. None of that is defined that clearly, right? Where the abstraction is actually the destination. Then it kind of challenges like what we know. But then you have somebody like Kendrick Lamar come in. And his relationship to jazz musicians is like this. He and Herbie Hancock are making a record right now. They are working together. Or All his friends, the way he's constructed those last couple of records of his, have put together sounds that no jazz musician could come up with and also no hip-hop band could come up with. So he kind of found this strange meeting point and put all these people together and somehow has made these products that for me still, like somehow he continues to charge the public in a shocking way. 
and good work fucking stands out, you know, against the backdrop of such trash, you know? So, and I, you know, his work ain't perfect either, but, you know, but when it shows up like on point, it's shocking. And it resonates too. I mean, yeah. it's not, it's not the kind of work where a lot of pop music works on being recognizable. So I, I like this cause I've heard this before somehow, yeah. uh, but this stuff is like, it's something you haven't heard before. Let's hear a little bit about Luanda Kinshasa. How did that unfold? Let's see. I think you... I gave you a call. Yeah. And, you know, we kind of always stay in contact with each other because also you have a show kind of fairly frequently. And so I always check in to see, like, so Stan is up to something, whether I know it or not. So go see his show, give him a call, let's hang out and talk. And then you started talking about Miles Davis. Yeah, I mean, uh, my favorite record of all time is On the Corner. You know, I have multiple copies, which I wear out. And to me, this is what Utopia sounds like. I always felt that Miles retired and didn't come out of retirement in, in the 70s. Like, I don't believe the <laughs> 80s thing is really what he, what, what he was. It's something else. Um, that's my position. I'm sticking to it. Um, so I thought, what if he didn't go out of retirement? What would be the logic of what we do next? Right. And it would seem to be he'd pick up on the Afrobeat being part of the disco scene. And maybe that would be the way of getting the kids into it. had an idea what the interpretation would be, asked right. to be the band leader, yeah. find people you knew. Yeah, and there was a long process of kind of looking at musicians, you know. You know, also finding musicians who I knew would be open to this yeah. um, because it entailed some rigor and some a belief system right. <laughs> because we wouldn't actually really play with everybody at the same time. Yeah. So I couldn't even explain much of this stuff to musicians that we'd call, but we really spent a long time looking at people. Yeah, they had to trust you, trust you that you would uh, not make them look bad in the end. Because <laughs> like the bed track people on the first day, they had no idea what was going to happen yeah. later on. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, people think it's actually a, a, a session. That's a, a live session, but actually the two halves of the, of the group never played together. We shot one side of the studio with the uh, rhythm tracks uh, one day. Next day, all the leads and played back the previous day's tracks to them. The drummer, Kim Thompson, had a, a click track, so everything was in the same uh, same tempo. Right. Which was uh, surely worked out to be, I remember now, it's like two seconds and... 12 frames so I could actually divide it up um, evenly in terms of video cutting so I would never like go to phase in the, in the video editing and then the next day we played back those tracks and sort of you know got what we needed and then over the next months I worked with uh, Scotty Hard to recombine these tracks into new songs and then somebody decided to change the key uh, partway through the, the second session <laughs> and we had to deal with that But that's actually when it gets really interesting. Like as a you know as a as a piece. I mean, walking into the room to to see it. Uh, I'm talking about in the the space where you were recording. Yeah. And then when you explained, I felt like that was one of the first times I heard. You know, like okay, so this is how it's going to be. And I wasn't even sure. You know, like much of I think what musicians do is we kind of trust the vision because we never really know because we're only a part, a bit part in a larger kind of scope. So this piece was I felt like that, and and you know, and I remember I came in. The first day, and I got my hair done. <laughs> <laughs> I, made, I, I made everybody like not shave yeah. and grow their hair out. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and that was the thing to kind of tell people was like, yo, you know, so Stan says, <laughs> stop shaving. <laughs> please stop shaving. <laughs> and I was here, I was growing my hair out for four months in my beard in the summer in New York. And I was like, oh, 
And I was like, only for Stan would I do this. Yeah. And then we walked into the space and we saw we saw the piece. And I think, um, I mean, it was shocking. Well, one, because of the scale of it. You know, like you might think that, oh, it's going to be on like a little, you know, video screen. So, you know, but now we see it in a large room yeah. on a large wall with a pump and sound system and spaces to sit down. So my friends are like, oh, man, I didn't know it was going to be like this. You know, like, as and excited. Right. Mm. I was so happy when the New York Times, they had a review of it. And it wasn't in the article, it just said pop. It was in the pop <laughs> section. <laughs> you made it. Yeah. Exactly, you made it. I mean, one of the things is that you're an actor in mm-hmm. the piece and a musician. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that, what was that playing experience it's like, like? It's like being a porn actor. <laughs> Because it's got to be real. Well, I don't it's know about all real. that. I mean, you, you, you can't fake it. It's got to be. I didn't say that. Stan said that. that was, <laughs> if it's not real, we know. <laughs> you know, music kind of can pull you out of like whatever weird psychological state. And also being around a bunch of friends and kind of knowing that we're all in something a little bit odd together, you know? So, so everybody was like, oh, okay, well, cool. So we look across the room and see each other and be like, okay, you look just as real as I do. <laughs> you know, but we could not really see each other. I mean, we couldn't see ourselves, so we could only kind of go off of that energy. But then as we started to play, that then became the real thing for us. So it wasn't about you acting at all. It was about you performing. Yeah, because that's the only way it's going to be good. Uh, and it's so solid. What was the studio that you were basing? Uh, it was called, they call it the church. It was a desacralized church on 30th Street where... Uh, Miles Davis did all of his recordings mm. until the early 80s. One of the magical properties of him is he's able to pull people together. You know, I play with a fair amount of musicians who played with Miles, and and they talk about what that felt like. And um, <laughs> What did it feel like? Uh, I mean, you, know, you felt like you could be yourself, right. but also then he would come in your ear and, and, and demand like to scale it up. And then, yeah, like do that other thing, which is like, okay, so now I'm going to change how you interact with this instrument. So I'm going to take the piano away from you, you know. And I think always combining another, maybe like a free agent. There's always a couple of free agents in the band Mm -hmm. functioning in a way. In what way? Someone who's going to like apply the pressure to the situation so that then like this other extract comes out. Having a saxophone is like Wayne Shorter in the group. You know, Wayne Shorter had played with Art Blakey, but then by the time he gets to Miles, he really kind of finds this way to slither on the ground. And Miles plays like that, but Wayne plays like that with a very different kind of sensibility. Or John Coltrane, when John Coltrane was in the group. Most famously, uh, Coltrane loved to take these long solos, and then Coltrane would say, well, how can I play shorter? And Miles, this quote is, well, just take the horn out of your mouth. <laughs> so, you know, but like he always has a f- free agent in the group. So kind of treating musicians like ready-made materials and an assemblage. So he, he recombines in, in a way. Yeah. supposed to be a group where it's like the, the same group over and over again. Any kind of stuff that's coming up that's worth mentioning or talking about? Just finished writing a new play called Locus Stanti. That's a verbatim play. A verbatim play is where you take the words spoken at events. So it's like a documentary. This is a extradition here. You have Leonard Peltier who was an AIM activist. He was a Native American leader who was in the 70s involved at, in South Dakota, accused of killing two FBI agents, which uh, was probably not the case because other people accused with him were, uh, were set free. Mm. He escaped to Canada, was caught, spent a, a year in Vancouver in jail, and there's a hearing, and they sort of explained the U.S. basically had a very, very flimsy case the defense claimed it was a, a political trial, and the whole community in South Dakota is being terrorized by both the FBI 
and the elected government that was there opposing the sort of traditional government that they uh, had, had lived with. Transcripts were on my, my desk for about a about six months, about a thousand pages, and I just sort of was afraid it was not good enough or I was not good enough. But when I got into it, just like the, the stories being told were so vivid and so you know mm. horrifying, and the characters were so well drawn just by their their dialogue, their their syntax that mm. uh, it was quite compelling. And we just had a, a reading in Toronto in February, a reading, a table reading, and um, if all goes well, it'll premiere in 2019. That's stunning. The next piece working on for the fall is based on uh, the musician and band leader named James Reese Europe, who was maybe the father of modern jazz. So 100 years ago, he was uh, he led a, a battalion into World War I uh, called the Harlem Hellfighters. But he was writing some extremely dense music for his band, and you know they were kind of a syncopation jazz group. But he wanted to go to war, and he wanted to work with the best musicians. So they went to fight in France, and they are responsible for bringing jazz to Europe. So his name is James Reese Europe. It's a very bizarre story. But I'm working with the canon of music that he was writing while they were fighting. And then um, he returns to America at intermission during a concert he's giving in Boston. He's murdered by his drummer. And he was still quite young. So, But he is like the hero of Duke Ellington. He, you know, he sets up the notion of this is what a big band can sound like. And everyone follows his model. I mean, he had a concert at Carnegie Hall maybe in 1912 with 100 musicians on stage. Hmm. So an African-American composer with that many musicians on a Carnegie Hall stage. <laughs> so he was really like a progressive kind of artist. I'm really not sure what this piece will become, but we're performing it at the London Jazz Festival in the fall and then in D.C. at the Kennedy Center. Amazing. Should pick a movie too. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Thanks. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for doing that. That was awesome. It's really fun. Good. Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. You can find out more about the artists in this series by going to davidswerner.com slash dialogues. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review Dialogues on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It helps other people discover the show. I'm Lucas Werner, and thanks so much for listening. I hope you'll join us next time. This podcast is a partnership between David Werner and Slate Studios.